Hey church, Pastor Adam here, and I want to say thank you so much for stopping by to join us for church online today. And and while we are super stoked that you're hanging out with us this morning, we do want to remind you that really this is just supplemental. And man, it just cannot replace the local church in your life. And so look, we hope that you are encouraged and and challenged and shaped by today's message that's being preached. Uh, But but also, we don't want to be your substitute. Uh, for the local church body that you should be involved in. We really do believe that the local church is God's plan A in reaching the world. So with that being said, please come hang out with us in person uh, one Sunday. If you're in Paducah in the area, come hang out with us to get some rest or find a local Bible-believing, Jesus-preaching church that you can get plugged in and connected to. Uh, Jesus loves the church and and we love Jesus and, and we believe that we can better serve uh, Jesus, if we love his church well. So, welcome to Rest. Good morning, Rest Church! So, um, as in case you don't know, I'm a bit emotional. Um, both, both ends of the spectrum. But as I was sitting um, in worship this morning, I was... Um, I was overcame with emotions at where God has brought us. This morning, 100% of the servanthood that is done in this church, all of the positions, all of the volunteers everywhere, on the worship team, in the children's ministry, in the cafe, in the welcome area, has been done by men to serve women. And, and I don't want to applaud the dudes because it's all in an effort to serve the women, but I was overcame with the fact that our church is in a place where men could serve women. Amen. And then I started rolling back. And I came to Easter Seals. In 2015, eight years ago, today, eight years ago, today, that God planted Rest Church. And we're here, we're here, we're thriving. We've we've had some bumps, we've had some bruises, but we've seen a lot of people cross from death into life. We've seen hell, hell have its teeth kicked in for God's glory and for his church's preservation. And so this morning, I not only want to say happy Mother's Day to you, but happy birthday rest. So this morning, we're going to continue on our sermon series through the book of Romans. And I'm going to try to be very respectful of your time, um, which is odd, but I'm going to try. Um, as, we, as we come into the word. And so if you would, would you go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter number two, and we're going to start with verse number 17, Romans chapter two, verse 17. And we're kind of in this bucket, the second bucket of, of all the places kind of in the, in the background of where we've been going. And it's called the saints and the ain'ts. In this particular bucket that we're in. And last week, Pastor AB kind of did this, excuse me, um, the law 101. Do you guys remember that? Yeah, he, he did that like 15 times. Um, uh, you gave him a lot more grace than you would have gave me. Just want to point that out. 
But his main theme last week that he really, really wrestled with and that, that, that we as a church really tried to unpack was that love doesn't replace the law, right? So Christ is Cain. We are now under the new covenant. The old mosaical covenant is, is, is no longer what we are bound by, but we are bound under the new covenant. But that doesn't erase the law because the law points us to the fact that we are a sinner and it shows us our need for a savior, right? So the law isn't gone. The law comes from a place of love. It's to point us to Jesus, And so this morning, as we dive into this particular place, uh, entitled today's message, Religious People Need the Gospel. Can I get an amen? Amen. I don't know about you, but man, I grew up under some religious teaching. I grew up under some, if you didn't wear the right clothes, if you didn't have the right hair, if you, if you didn't drive the right vehicle, you didn't sing the right songs, you might not make it to heaven, right? And so today we're going to wrestle around this particular topic and our understanding of religious people need the gospel too. So church, let us read the word of the Lord. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher, I ask that as we open up your word, as we begin to dissect your word, that you would illuminate your scriptures, that you would draw our hearts back to you, that God, that you would, that we would give you the latitude to reprove, to rebuke, and to correct us. God, that you might set right the bones that need mended in our broken heart. Lord, move in this place. We beg of you today. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Because I know your electronic version won't let you do this. Um, I want you to to clue in, in verse 17 on the second word in the verse. Second word in the verse. Here we go. But if you call yourself a Jew, I want you to clue in on this word, if, but if you call yourself a Jew, verse 17 is reminding us who Paul is talking to in chapter two. So let's kind of, let's go back. Chapter number one, he begins to deal with the Gentiles. This group of Gentile Hellenistic Christians who had practiced idolatry, who had practiced pagan worship prior to coming to know the, the excellencies of Christ. These folks were living jacked up lives. You know, they're doing everything abominable that you can imagine they are doing. And they're not doing it, they're doing it well. And so Paul condemns them. And in doing so, given the fact that the Roman church, the church in Rome was both Jew and um, um, Gentile, the Jews would have been like, yeah, Paul, you tell them, you tell them. And so in chapter number two, Paul begins to flip the script on them. And he says, hey, you thought I was leaving you out. Ha, 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 ha. Not And he begins to just really give them a proper thrashing, as my English people would say. 
He begins to give them this proper thrashing. And in doing so, he is speaking primarily in chapter 2 to the Jewish audience. And so here we are. We see him saying, but if you call yourself a Jew. Man, that's incendiary language to a Jew. That would basically be like you going up to some dude who's wearing a trucker hat backwards with an American uh, flag shirt with a wolf on it and a moon. <laughs> it's so true, isn't it? Anyways, you go up to that dude and like, you don't love America. Right? That's incendiary talk to that guy. He'd be like, what do you mean I don't love America? Paul is, is saying that very thing to the Jews. He's, he's speaking crazy to them. Imagine a good Jew reading this verse and then going, if I'm a Jew, how can you possibly say that? I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew. We feel the force if we were to kind of say, if I was to say to you, if you're a Christian, blank. If I was to load a question, if you're truly a Christian, you will do blank. That feels like you have no room. You've been backed into a corner, right? You, you get in that moment where you're like, you're beginning to wrestle with, am I or am I not truly a Christian? When we wrestle with that idea and that concept, why is Paul addressing the Jews? Why, why is he doing this? It's because Paul is on this slow approach, and he's already done it with the Gentiles in chapter 1. He's in this slow approach to thoroughly thrash everyone, to point to everyone that they may see as we get to chapter 3. Because we're going to, just so you know, just it's going to get better, I promise. In Romans, like right now, we're in the place where it's law, 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 as AB said last week. Like, we're going to get to a place where it's going to feel better because we're going to get to hear the good news of the gospel. In chapter three, we're going to see this transformation, this flip where we begin to hear, hey, you all stink, but there's good news. Right? Right now, we're still kind of in the you all stink phase. And so Paul's writing to them because he wants them to see that they are, that they themselves, the Jews, are guilty before God. He's, he's creating this slow moving argument that all people, both Jew and Gentile, are guilty before God because we have broken not only God's word that has been written on our heart that the Gentiles, who he speaks about, but also God's written law that was given to Moses is on Mount Sinai, we have broke both. We are transgressors of both. And he needs them to see this so that he can point them to Jesus. And within Judaism, he kind of, he, he, in this section, he begins to unpack um, very much this idea and this concept of, of having the knowledge of the law. And, and, what he's trying to do is he's trying to deconstruct the three pillars of Judaism that they might see their need for a savior. What are these three pillars of Judaism? So we have the covenant, the mosaical law that was given on Mount Sinai, that was expanded in Leviticus 
And then we have kind of that, 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 that law, the Levitical law, and then we have circumcision. So we have these three main pillars of Judaism. And so in order for us to really understand when he talks about, but you a Jew, he's talking about the premise of these three pillars that they thought by proxy that because they were a Jew by nationality, a Jew by birth, that they themselves were protected by these three pillars, the covenant, the law and circumcision. And so as we come to this text, it's critical that we keep these three pillars in the back of our mind as we begin to unpack. Paul lists six things that the Jews are proud of here, in particular in verses 17 through 20, and how that they lived and their moral goodness. So number one, we see right off the bat, you call yourself a Jew. So he addresses the fact that they call themselves a Jew. They are a proud people. They're proud of their nationality. They are pleased to be Jews. Verse 17, we also see they rely on the law. They have this pride, this innate sense of pride in having and knowing the law that God had revealed to their ancestor Moses on Mount Sinai. In Exodus chapters um, 19 through 31. And so they have this great pride in the fact that this has happened to their people. He goes on to say in verse uh, 17, you brag about your relationship with God. They brag about it because they go, we are God's chosen people, which is correct. They are God's chosen race, God's chosen priesthood prior to Christ. And so they, they brag about it. And if you know anything about Jews, they are a proud people. They're an entitled people. And I don't mean that with anti-Semitism. I don't mean that at all. I mean, in a literal sense, they are proud about that. They feel entitled because under the old covenant, they were God's chosen people people. They were elected. They were elected by God, elected by God before the foundations of the earth. God said, I have chose you to be in me, to be my people. And so because of this election, they have this sense of entitlement. And this is all of them. It's a whole nation, a whole race of people. And so when you keep that in mind and we look at verse 17 and we see that if you are a Jew, you understand the weight in the incendiary language that Paul is using against them. You might say, is Paul being anti-Semitic? Not at all. Paul himself is a Jew. But he wants to delineate that there is this difference between a national identity and a spiritual identity. It can be one thing to be a Jew nationally, but a completely different thing to be a Jew spiritually. So he goes on, verse 18, you know his will and approve what is superior. They are able, the Jews are able to make right, correct ethical decisions. They are able to see the wrong choices others are making. They, they follow the detailed rules and regulations in the law that God gave them as a sense to be able to please God. So they're using the law to adjudicate what is right and wrong. And he's like, hey, you say you're a Jew, you say you have the law, therefore you know what is right and wrong, which is completely separate of that of the Gentile. Verse 18, 
You were instructed by the law. They did not only have the law, but they have mastered the law. The the Jews during the time of Jesus and during the time of Paul, they could not only quote the Torah word for word, but they could debate the Torah. They could not only just debate the Torah, but they knew how to protect themselves from not breaking the Torah. They set up more laws to protect themselves from even getting close to breaking the Torah. They weren't like a little kid who, who, you know, you were like, don't touch the water bottle. I don't know about your kids. If I say to my kids, don't touch the water bottle, I'll look over and they'll be doing this. And I'll be like, I didn't, I told you not to touch the water bottle. I'm not touching the water bottle, dad. I'm not touching the water bottle. Do, do any of you have kids like that? Right, right, right. Well, for some reason, when it comes to our spiritual walk, the Jews knew that that is our proclivity, right? It's like, Jesus, I know you've asked me not to sin, so I won't sin, right? Right? It's like a, a bad show comes on the TV and you're, you're doing this the whole time. Like, I know I'm not supposed to watch it. But the Jews knew that, and so because of that, instead of having a correct heart response, the Jews began to set up new rules and new regulations that said, hey, don't do this, because if you do, you might do this, which might lead to you doing the bad thing. So, so they know his will. They've been instructed by the law, and they can go into deep details of it. They're, they're, they're blindly obeying the law. And he goes on to say in verses 19 and 20, you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind. They know that through the light of the Torah, through the light of the law, they can see the truth of God that others cannot. Because they are lost in idolatry. But because they are worshiping the one true God, Yahweh, they are called to spread that good news much like we are. We are called to proselyte the nations with the good news of Jesus. They were called to do the same, to use that Torah and to lead others to faith in Yahweh God. And so as we, as we kind of look at these, these scriptures here that we have this morning, you, it might be difficult for you to go, okay, what, what, what are you getting at? Don't get it twisted. Paul is not saying there is anything wrong with being a Jew, with having, knowing, and internalizing God's law, with using his commands to make ethical decisions or seeking to share it with others. There is nothing inherently bad there in and of itself. Say nothing. Nothing is bad there. The problem, though, is that Paul knew their heart. Paul knew their inner heart. Here it is, verse 17. But if you call yourselves a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God. It is not their Jewishness or having the law and, and far less the keeping of it that is wrong. 
It is their attitude to their nationality and their morality. They believe that they are saved by proximity to the law. They believe that they are okay before God the Father because of their nationality. They believe that in by doing the law, by blindly obeying the law, they are preserved. They are relying on their Jewishness. They are relying on the three pillars, the covenant, the law, and the circumstances as if it's a salvation, a system of salvation. The content of the law is fine, but using the law as the way to eternal life only leads to death. And that's what Paul's getting at. As we know from the New Testament, the law does nothing to bring about life. Rather, the law brings death. Many Jews hide behind these things, but Paul says there is nowhere to hide from the judgment of God except in Christ Jesus. There is nowhere to hide. The law does not hide us from the judgment of God. Only Christ Jesus can do it. As I look at this text, that whole text that I read, I believe that from there we can draw out two different groups that Paul is really writing to, that he's trying to address. And I promise it's going to get a lot more not as stale and dry as what we started with. But these two groups here, number one, the religious moralist. They practice subtle hypocrisy. Subtle hypocrisy. And then you have the religious renegades, the blatant hypocrisy. And and here, in our time together, I I want to specifically wrestle around the religious moralist because the truth is, is this is so prevalent in the modern day church. This particular idea of being religious And and yet a moralist is pervading into the modern church in such a way that people think that they know Christ Jesus because they're doing all the right things, but they themselves are stone whitewashed tombs that look on the outside, all beautiful, that look like they're heading to heaven, but on the inside, they are full of dead bones that when they die, they will meet hell. At the heart of what Paul's getting at with the church of Rome is for them not to fall in this same trap. To begin to just go through the motions for the motions sake. And so when I say a religious moralist or to have this subtle hypocrisy, this is what I mean. They knew the letter of the law, but didn't know the God who wrote the letter. How many of you have experienced this in the church. You, you've been to that church, you've sat under that pastor, you've been around that family member who they're a religious moralist. They know what the law says and they're really good at keeping it, but they don't know the Jesus that wrote the law. They're not living in the grace and the humility that the gospel brings. They're not living in the joy that the fruit of the spirit should have inside of their life. They're just living in utter sadness, utter disgust at everyone else. They're not broken for the loss. They're mad at the loss for being lost. Have you, have you been to that church? Have you been around those people? It's exhausting. 
And maybe your first time guest, you're like, yeah, that's my kind of church. You will not fit in here. You will not fit in here. And that's great because we want to convert you to Jesus. We want to let you see that broken people are accepted into the kingdom of heaven because we're all broken. We're a mosaic that is being mended, that is being made perfect in his righteousness, not in ours. And so this is a bold statement that they knew the letter of the law but didn't know the God who wrote the law. And so when you think about it from a Jewish perspective, that, that's crazy. They're like, we know the Torah inside and out. How can you say that we don't know the God that you're writing about? Because it's all about how we approach it mentally and in our deepest heart of hearts. But Paul gets it. Because Paul is writing from a perspective that none of us can understand. Paul is writing from this perspective because he himself is a recovering pharisaical addict. That he himself is in recovery from being a Pharisee. And one season of Paul's life, he was working to accumulate many righteous works for himself as a badge of honor. If we look at Philippians chapter 3, where Paul lays out his Jewish pedigree, he says the following, though I myself have a reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. This is, this is basically like him walking up with a military uniform on for all his cool things, and he goes, look how many cool ribbons I got. Look how many medals I've got. I've got more than all of you. I've got more in confidence in the flesh than all of you. Here it is, verse five. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. What was Paul? Come on, we can do this together. What was Paul? Paul was a Pharisee. And, and not just that, verse six, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness under the law, what church? Holy smokes. How many of you have read the law and came out on the other side going, I'm blameless? I thought he was raising his hand. <laughs> bad time, bad time. <laughs> I was like, whoa, but, but, but how many of you came out on the other side going, I, I'm blameless. Yeah, that's me. I'm blameless. No, under the weight of the law, we go, oh my goodness, I am an utter disaster. I am hopeless apart from the righteousness that Christ may give to me, that he may impute to me apart from the righteousness of Christ. I am nothing. I stand woefully inadequate at the fury and the wrath of God, the father, he should smite me. Amen? Amen? Paul knows what, it's look, what, it, what it looks like to set from the pharmaceutical perspective that he's calling out in Romans chapter 2. To believe that you are righteous by association to the law. To have the mark of the covenant on your body, literally. To be blind doer of the law. To be both Paul and Jesus, they flipped this idea upside down. And today we're going to kind of unpack these two statements. I'm going to bring them to you quite frequently. The first one is this. You can do right for the wrong reasons, making it unrighteous. You can do right 
for the wrong reasons, making it unrighteous. I don't have this in my notes, but I just want to tell you this. You don't always need to speak your truth, and you don't always need to speak the truth. Sometimes timing is just as important as what needs to be said. You can say the right thing at the wrong time and it'll be wrong. And some of us need to learn this. If we want to reach lost people, we don't need to go yell and scream at them when they're soaking up their sin. We need to catch them in the moments when they're vulnerable and let them be drawn in by the kindness of the gospel. Sometimes saying the right thing at the wrong time does more damage than saying nothing at all. We have to understand we are the beholders of the truth. We serve the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other truth, no other way to get to God, to get to heaven except through him. And so we have to be careful and articulable about how we share that and when we share that. And so you do it for the wrong intentions, for the wrong motives. I want to tell you it is sin. It is sin. So you can do the right thing for the wrong reasons and make it unrighteous. So be very, very careful at your heart when you say things that are sometimes harsh and cutting. Does that mean avoid saying them? No, 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 no. Saying nothing at all. Saying nothing at all is really bad. But we have to be careful about when we say it. Tim Keller has this great, great quote that I want to say to you over and over, and I, I want to invite you to write it down, and I invite you to meditate on it this week. True religion is about heart motives as much as about actions. True religion is about heart motives as much as about actions. This is the intersection where many religious people need the good news of the gospel pounded in their head over and over and over again. Even in Christianity, even in the new covenant, we have modern day Pharisees who boast in their doings and their accomplishments. I want to just go ahead and confess, I am a Pharisee. I am prone to pharisaical tendencies. I am prone to cast judgment when I should not. I am prone to judge before I give grace. I am prone to living a life of discipline built upon works more so than pursuant after Jesus. I am a recovering Pharisee. They do good, and in their doing good, they project condemnation onto others because they sin differently than them. They project condemnation onto others when they worship differently than them. For example, these folks, these Pharisees that live in the church, that move and breathe, who are in leadership positions in the church, who are your friends, who are your family, they'll do things like this. They'll cast judgment on someone who has a beer at their dinner or has a glass of wine, but are absolutely okay at the church potluck for the very different people to have four plates of heaping food.
They will cast judgment on someone who has tattoos on their body, but on the inside, they themselves are filled with anger and resentment of all kind. They spew hatred all day long, every single day. But you're going to hell because you got a tattoo. I'm going to get real home. I'm going to get real, real tight with you on this one. They'll stand out and talk really, really bad about the LGBT community and how, how terrible they are and how that their sin is terrible. But at home, they're not talking to their son or daughter who is shacking up and got three kids and isn't married, living in a life of sin. Now, I'm just going to call it the way it is. Both are sin. Both are sin. Both are a departure from God's intended way, which is man and wife for one life and to not be doing it until you got a ring on it. That, that's God's intended path. I'm sorry if that's not what you want to hear, but that's God's intended path. And the truth is, is, is that we can't just pick and choose our you know, things we want to throw stones at. We can't pick and choose. They use their appearance of righteousness as a weapon. Have you been around those people? Who condemn you for not looking like them? Who condemn you because your story is a little different than theirs? I want to tell you, I want to tell you this. If that is you, because we're all prone to be there. I, I want you to hear that. We're all prone to be there. Because as we grow in knowledge of Christ, Russ, what does knowledge do? It puffs up. We're all prone. We're all prone as we grow into Christ to become perfect little Pharisees. And so we have to constantly check our hearts because we will, like them, use our appearance of righteousness as a weapon. During Jesus' earthly ministry, he gave his disciples a very clear example of this in Luke chapter 18. He says this, Luke 18, 9 through 14. He also told the parables to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Let's pause right there. Anybody who trusts themselves that they're righteous, full stop on yourself right there. Better check yourself or you wreck yourself, as Johan says. And treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by themselves, prayed thus. I want, I want to pause here. I want you to all catch. There's five eyes here. There's five eyes. God I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like the tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Did you notice a pattern there? The pattern was, if Jesus set it out in the course to some who trust in themselves that they were righteous. He's the whole time praying to God. Look how good I am. Look how good I am. Verse 13. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But beat 
his breath saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to the house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And I want to draw you back to this. True religion is about heart motives as much as about actions. Many Christians love the doctrine of grace, but they haven't grown in showing grace. We have not become more gracious, more kind, more tender and compassionate. And that can only mean one thing, is that we don't actually understand the doctrine of grace. Sure, we know the the points and we can rehearse the arguments and even recall verses that support it, but a Christian without humility is just a Pharisee with a fresh coat of paint. A Christian without humility is just a Pharisee with a fresh coat of paint. A.W. Tozer said this, a Pharisee is hard on others and easy on himself, but a spiritual man is easy on others and hard on himself. A Pharisee is hard on others and easy on himself, but a spiritual man is easy on others and hard on himself. The call of the gospel is for us to be obedient and still humble. Obedience without humility reeks on self-reliance and self-exaltation. If you look at Jesus' frustration with the religious leaders, it was not because of how careful they were to follow the law. Rather than using the law to draw their hearts to God in humility, they used the law to build false self-idols within their hearts that they were doing good. Humility is one of the core fundamental tenets of the gospel. A few weeks back, I said, true faith is an obedient faith. But it should also be said, true faith is a humble faith. True faith is a humble faith. If we believe in Christ Jesus, humility should drip off of our lips. Humility should pour out of our mouths and out of the overflow of our hearts. If the Pharisee, maybe you say, Pastor, if the Pharisee is not my example, what is? Funny you should ask. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. Paul, writing to the church in Philippi, begins to describe Jesus. Do nothing from self-ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Our example is Christ Jesus himself. We are to mimic his heart, his works. While he was God in the flesh, he submitted himself to the authority of God the Father. The voice that spoke the darkness into light. The voice that spoke the darkness into light. 
is, is the very same voice that took the form of a servant. It is the very same voice that cried out to Telestai to the Judean countryside as he was working his blood out of his body that he may save the very people who were strapping him and beating him to that cross. That is the example of humility that we are to follow. This right here is the basis of Christianity. And for so many, we miss it. For many of us, we find ourselves in pursuit of Jesus' things, but not Jesus. For example, we memorize scripture or study scripture, not for depth of understanding of Jesus, but as a badge of honor to be worn. How many of you would confess I've done that before? I've just memorized scripture just so I can just so I can just show everybody how smart I am. Or maybe you've you studied doctrine so that you can go go have it out with your Armenian or or your Calvinist friends. You stand on the opposite side of the fence. How dare you? You don't know the Lord. John Piper warns believers of the trap of loving the study of God more than God Himself. Loving learning more than the Lord himself. Have you tripped on this line before? Maybe you've even perpetuated this ideology to others. I know I've been guilty of it myself. I've engaged in Jesus things, not for the sake of the kingdom, but for my own good and my own glory. I have projected my pride and my knowledge of Christ onto others like a good Pharisee I have. I have even engaged in recruiting others to be in my militia. The famous love passage and 1 Corinthians 13 should inform the stride of every Christian. Paul's sweeping application of love isn't to be just read at weddings while everybody waits for the cake to be cut. 1 Corinthians is for life and ministry toward one another. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. I want to read that. If I speak in the tongues of men, and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. He said, essentially, you can, you can be a holy roller, you can roll all over, you can speak in tongues, you can do that all day long, but if you have not love, you're just a clanging gong. And if I have prophetic powers, and understand all the mysteries and all the knowledge. And if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I have nothing. He said, you can believe in the centrality of the gospel. You can believe in the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. You can believe in it all. You can have, you can be a, a, a postmodern uh, pre-tribulationist and it doesn't matter. It's all for nothing. You can heal people, but if you have not love, you have nothing. You've missed everything. You can have the gift of prophecy, but if you have not love, you've missed everything. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, 
He says, if I'm a martyr for Christ, but I have not love, I gain nothing. This should grip us at its tightest core. It should shake our very foundation of our faith. It says, full stop to us. If you don't have love, you have nothing. If we can speak eloquently about the scriptures and doctrine, but don't have love, we are like a microphone feeding back. If we know every worship song written and can quote the whole of Romans, but don't have love, it's nothing but a big nothing burger. Love and humility matter. I want you to, I want you to do something. Well, we're going to do an exercise. In your mind, I'm not going to ask you to read out loud, but I want you to replace the word love with our own names. I want you to read it. And every place you see love, I want you to put your name in there. Like Cody is patient. Cody is kind. Cody does not envy. It's a great way to discover with the Spirit's help how loving or unloving we are towards others. And so we're going to read verses four through seven. And I want you to insert your name here where love's at. So here it is. Blank is patient and kind. Blank does not envy or boast. Blank is not arrogant or rude. Blank does not insist on its own way. Blank is not irritable or resentful. Blank does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Blank bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Chances are, some of us stopped inserting our name after the first or second time. As you started to do that, your heart sank deep into your stomach. And if you did, that's good. But if you read it proudly, as you came to that text, you said, Cody is patient and kind. Cody does not envy or boast. Cody is not arrogant or rude. Cody does not insist on his own way. Cody is not irritable or resentful. Cody does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Cody bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. If that's you, I beg you to draw near to Christ. I beg you to pray the prayer of David in Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I want to tell you, if you read that and you were wrecked, you're in a good place. Because I want to tell you, if I, if I projected that to Molly, if I said that to Molly in the truest of spirit, she would lay hands on me. Right? Probably not. She's like literally the epitome of 
1 Corinthians 13, it makes me sick. <laughs> True religion is about heart motives as much as about actions. So what's the call for us today? We come to this place in, in, in Romans chapter 2. Where, where Paul is essentially saying, you believe by your proximity of the law that you are accepted. But your heart is dead. On the outside, you look great, but on the inside, your heart is dead. You're, you're doing God things, but you're doing them with the wrong motive. So what's the call for us today? What's the action for us today? Number one, repent of being a Pharisee. Repent of practicing your faith to be seen by others, yourself and others. Pharisees cover sin instead of confessing and repenting. So I, I, I can't impress this upon you enough. Repent of being a Pharisee. If you felt conviction when you put your name in 1 Corinthians 13, don't hide it, exfoliate it. Here's why. We are all guilty under the law. You are in good company. You are in good company. We are all guilty, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, no, not one. The eyes of the Lord search to and fro throughout the earth to find a heart that is truly his. Why do these scriptures keep coming up in the scriptures? Because it's pointing to this. We are all devoid of the Imago Dei in our hearts. We might have Imago Dei in our minds and our bodies in the image of God, but we are reckless, depraved beings. So don't run from it. Don't hide it. Confess it. I want to tell you, I say this, say this all the time, but I, I don't ever miss the opportunity to say this. We confess our sins to God to be forgiven, but we confess our sins to one another to be healed. That's why he says, confess your sins one to another that you may find healing is because what I know is that when we confess our sins, when we are open and we are transparent, accountability comes in. Accountability is how we get drawn to Christ. And so don't hide it, confess it. A few weeks back, I, I drilled this home in, in, in the close of the sermon. And I've had multiple men come to me in the last couple of weeks and say to me, I can't carry it anymore. You said for me to confess it. I'm bringing it to you. I need you to help me. Don't go another day carrying the burden that tethers you to the pit of hell. Don't do it anymore. Confess it. Say, I need you to walk alongside me. I need you to help me get to Jesus because I'm struggling to get there alone. And I want to tell you, you, you feel shame and you feel scared. Men and women, both alike, 
Women don't want to confess certain things that they're struggling with, and men don't want to confess certain things they're struggling with. The truth is, is there are men who are battling depression, who are battling anxiety, and they can't seem to get a grip on life. They're battling substance abuse, and they don't want to talk about it because they're ashamed that as a man, they can't own their own stuff. But on the other side, where that's socially accepted for women to talk about, women don't want to talk about their porn addiction. They don't want to talk about their substance abuse that they're hiding in the closet away from their family. They, they hide it because that's not socially acceptable. Don't let yourself be tethered to the sin any longer. Confess it one to another because God might give you forgiveness, but you're chained to it until you ask someone to help you walk to it. Because like a dog returning to its vomit, we constantly want to return to our sin. So I am begging you, don't be a Pharisee. Don't get the pressure washer out today and say, oh, he almost caught me. Let me clear up this spot on the outside. Because that's what we do. We're so superficial. And, and, and the reality is, man, I don't want to play church. The pastor team, we don't want to play church. We don't care if your life's broken. At least be honest about it. Because we can fix broken people, but people who lie to us and say their life's all together, we can't help you. We can't help you get to where God's calling you to be. So confess that you're a Pharisee today. Repent of it and confess. Number two, point to Jesus as the standard and away from yourself. Pharisees keep people from Jesus and his grace. One of the greatest dangers of being a Pharisee is that it's contagious. When we disconnect our heart from our head, subtly putting our confidence in our flesh, we lead other people away from Jesus with us. When Pharisees make disciples of all nations, they breed children of hell, not sons and daughters of grace. I want to tell you, I know many, 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 many children who have grown up in the church. And when they turn 18, they get the heck out of Dodge. Why? Why do they get the heck out of Dodge? Because mom and dad are a bunch of Pharisees. They come to church. Oh, hi, brother. Hi, brother. Ha, ha, ha. Oh, it's so good to see you. Yeah, yeah. And they get home and they treat their kids like dog crap. It's do as I say, not as I do. There's no modeling of Jesus. And so they say, it's just a farce. It's just a religion. It's all a show. Don't point to yourself. I want to tell you, if you take on the example of humility with your kids, if you confess to them when you made a mistake on their behalf, they will love you for it. They will love you for it. And I want to tell you, it's the hardest thing to do, man. To look at my six-year-old who you just want to whoop and be like, you know what, man? I really messed that one up. I, you know, but I, I really failed you. I, I made a promise. I made a commitment to you. and Buddy, I, I didn't deliver and there's no excuse. Dad sinned against you. Dad transgressed you. I'm sorry, will you forgive me? You know what that does? It changes from a transactional relationship to a relationship built on love. 
Because the reality is, is we as parents still make mistakes. So when you make a mistake, don't let your pride bull up and be all bowed up and be like, oh, they deserved it anyways. I, I, I just was catching them up for the few times I missed. Like, bro, that, 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 doesn't, that, doesn't, that doesn't fly with the Lord. Own your mistakes. Go to your kids and say, I'm sorry. Give grace and take grace. Point to Jesus as the standard and away from yourself. Seek to see God as he is and not as you want him to be. And then third, strive to abound in steadfast love. Pharisees lack love for people in need. The kingdom is about outdoing one another in good. Jesus said, he who wants to be first must be last. Paul said, considers others better than yourself. Love is born out of humility and dies without it. If we want to be a thriving church, we want to be thriving Christians, we want to be mothers and fathers who others look to for guidance, you want to be a person of the second chance, we must pursue humility. Because we can escape the scorching sun of our pride and find humility under the shade tree of the gospel. Maybe you say today, how do I abound in steadfast love? How do I abound in steadfast love? How do I seek humility, pastor? It's this simple. It's this simple. We must remind ourselves constantly of the news of our redemption. We must remind ourselves constantly of the gospel. What do I mean by that? We must be reminded of our sin. We must be reminded of the place, the wretched position that we were in when we surrendered our lives to Jesus. Because you cannot be a Pharisee if you remember how broken you were before you met Jesus. You cannot be a Pharisee if you have an honest conversation about how broken you actually are. Because you start to see they're not as bad as I thought they were because I am as equally bad as they are. And we are all broken. You can't be a Pharisee at the feet of the gospel. And so we must constantly wrestle with the gospel and wrestle with our sin. Otherwise, we begin to believe somehow we are good and others are not. Paul writes in Titus chapter 3, he says, We ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Does that recall your past? Does that recall your present? Because all I know is that I am a nothing without Jesus. I am a wretch who deserves hell. 
And I need to be reminded of that because the Pharisee in me wants to well up and believe that I can make it on my own. But the gospel says I cannot. And so please, this morning, do not pass this by because there are churches who are dying because of this moralistic thought process that they are, that they are good by association. You are not good because you sit here every week. You're not good because you open up your Bible and read it. That doesn't make you good. You're not good because you walk down the aisle and you confess Jesus Christ is Lord. You're not good because you're the pastor preaching. You're not good because you're an elder or you're a deacon. You're only good if you have the humility of the gospel in your heart. 